Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you as well um, for your prayers over these last few weeks. Many of you will know my father passed away about four, three, three weeks ago now, three and a half weeks ago, and um, we've just really known your sustaining grace. Actually, Dad, he was suffering for a long time, and uh, I've been praying that Jesus would take him home, and he has, and he's in a very happy place right now, <laughs> far happier than I am. And so it's just nice to know and be able to send him. We had such a wonderful funeral, and uh, he was just such a, a generous, faithful, prayerful man. He did, I don't know how many, I don't know if they do washing up in heaven, but if they do washing up in heaven, my dad is doing it right now, because he loved washing up, and he was such a servant, and he modeled that so well to us. So, but I really appreciate your prayers, and prayers for my mum as well, um, as she copes with an adjustment. He was living in a home, so it's not as big an adjustment for her, but it's still a massive loss. They were married for 60 years. And so um, it's a big loss for her, so I appreciate your prayers. But thank you guys for your support of us as well in the midst of it. Let's just pray, shall we, before we get into this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive. We thank you that it's a sword and that it cuts us, but in the cutting it changes us and shapes us and makes us anew. And we pray that you would do that today in the mess of our society, in the mess that many of us have come out of in our lives and from our families, that your word would come and shape us today and bring wholeness and healing and life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Colossians, and uh, we'll look on the screen as well. If you haven't, um, just to say, we're in this series called Hope and Glory, looking at the letter, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which is a phenomenal letter. If you've missed so far our series, I'd urge you to go back on the app or the website. You can pick up um, the, the messages. It's so critical that you do, because the first half of Colossians is all about our identity in Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for us. And really, this second half that we're looking at now comes out of the first half. So if you've missed the first half, it's like you know picking up... 24 at episode 12, you know, you just can't quite get on it. What on earth? I mean, I know you know that Jack Bauer's killing people, but apart from that, you're kind of missing some critical elements of the plot. So I'd urge you to go back and listen to that and understand that out of who we are now in Christ, who Christ has made us, then comes what Paul is about to, to write. And this passage that we write today has got one line, which is probably one of the most controversial in this whole letter, if not the most controversial. Uh, but it's never been needed more in our society because what our society is doing in terms of marriage and the family, quite frankly, just isn't working. <laughs> it just is not working. And you look at the stats and you can see that the 2012, there were 13 divorces an hour in 2012 in the UK. 13 divorces an hour. Women were granted 65% of those divorces. One in seven was as a result of adultery. 9% of those couples divorcing had both been divorced before. That's what they, they both had been divorced before and they got married and then divorced again. 48% of couples divorcing had at least one child aged 16 and, and under uh, living within the family. And, it's, and uh, currently around 42% of marriages end in divorce. That's the stats that we're living in. That's the stats that many of you have experienced. You've either been divorced, some, some of you more than once, or your parents were divorced, or you have friends or family members who have been divorced. There is hardly anyone in our society today who is not touched at some level by divorce. Just raise a hand if you have been touched at some, in some way by divorce. I mean, just look around the room. <laughs> Must be 60, 70% of the people in the room have been impacted in some way, either through themselves, their own marriage, or through uh, friends and loved ones. And you know, into that place, firstly, you need to understand there is no stigma in this community for those who have been divorced. 
You need to hear that. If you've been through that yourself, there is no stigma. We don't look through the, the, the address list and say, oh, divorced, mm, somehow second class. Because we all enter this room, how? By grace. <laughs> no, no, one, no one can point the finger at anybody else and say, somehow you failed. Caroline and I are still married. Do you know the reason we're still married? Is it because of anything great that we've done? It's by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. And as soon as you think your marriage is surviving through anything other than fundamentally, foundationally, the grace of God, you need to realize that you're on rocky ground. You can't build a kingdom life apart from God's grace. Now, of course, there are things that we can do, and we'll look at that, but fundamentally, it's by grace that any of us stands or fall. And so we need to realize there is grace, and you can feel the atmosphere of grace and healing in the room right now. I feel that some of you, even the fact that I've raised those statistics, you, you feel nervous and afraid where we're going to go. But you need to know, I feel an atmosphere of healing right now, not of condemnation and judgment. And so feel that and receive that. And second thing that, that you need to realize is that there is stuff in this passage that we'll look at while it's focusing on, on the marriage relationship initially, it actually has implications for men and women in general. And so there is not a person here, single married, single married, male, female, divorced or not, who can't get something out of this passage. There's phenomenal truth here, which will change us and shape us if we will allow it. So let's just read this little passage together. It starts actually more generally. And Paul's talking about being filled with Christ. In Colossians 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That little section we don't have much time to, to, to talk about, but I just want to point out there are four things that Paul lists in that passage that will take you through any storm, through any difficulty, through any marital breakdown or situation that you inherited from your parents. These four things are yours, and Paul's saying they belong to every believer, and they are these. Firstly, he says this, you have peace. <laughs> You can have the peace of Christ in your situation. It's yours. No matter what your background or your situation, the peace of Christ which guards your heart, which guards your mind, which helps you understand that you're eternally secure in him is yours. Get happy at any point. <laughs> because I used to think, oh, peace, peace, you know, that's kind of, oh, it's a bit, a bit damp, isn't it? But, you know, I used to pray for people sometimes for healing. I'd say, well, how do you feel afterwards? And they'd say, well, I don't feel any better, but I feel peace. And I'd be like, oh, rats. <laughs> Uh, you know, peace. Just this kind of like a wishy-washy, second-hand, second-state Christian result. Peace. We wanted a, a breakthrough. We wanted a miracle. I, do you know, I don't see that anymore. Because what I've seen is there is a world out there dying for peace. They are desperate for peace. And they're popping pills, desperately trying to get peace. And for any of you who know you've lost peace, you know that you, you would, if you had a choice of physical healing or peace, you would take peace. There is peace, Paul says, there is peace in Christ, a peace that will steal your anxiousness and your turmoil that will give you rest and sleep, and it's yours to have. Second thing he says is this, you can have God's word. It belongs to you. You can fill your mind with truth. What's in God's word primarily? It's hope. No matter what your circumstance or situation, you can have hope because of what God says about you in his word. Third thing he says you can have is worship. One day we will worship with no pain. 
we will worship and see God as he is. Hallelujah. But in this day, we have a unique privilege. We can worship in the pain. We can say, God, even though I'm in pain, you are still worthy of my worship. You are still worthy and you are still good. We can worship in the pain. And you won't be able to do that one day, but in this day you can worship in the pain. And the fourth thing that runs right the way through this passage, you'll have noticed, is thankfulness. We looked at this right at the beginning of Colossians. Paul says one of the keys to life, one of the keys to breakthrough. We, we think, God, if, if you give me the breakthrough, I'll thank you. Maybe the key to your breakthrough is found in thankfulness. Because Paul says in it all, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. And you know what's interesting about those four things? No one can take them away from you. <laughs> no matter what your parents did, no matter what your spouse does, no matter what your employer does, nobody can take those four things away from you. They are yours. They are mine in Christ. So get happy and receive those. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. We receive it. We receive your goodness, God, from these words, that you have these things for us. And out of the seeds of these are the very breakthroughs often that we need. You know, we had a lady come on TSM on our training for Supernatural Ministry course. We don't often talk about marriage. We don't really talk about it at all. Um, she came, and what we hadn't realized is as she came into the course, she was about to get divorced. In fact, this was kind of like her last kind of gasp, as it were, before she filed for divorce. Well, during the course, even though we didn't talk about divorce, we didn't talk about marriage, we didn't talk about any, any of those things really, we just dealt with her and her identity. Her whole life got turned upside down. Her marriage was restored. Her husband, who didn't even come on the course, said to me later, he said, it was like I was being discipled just by laying next to her in bed at night. He said, I was receiving, receiving bits of heaven and truth just by being next to her, even though I never came on the course. Anyway, their marriage was saved, and they're now back together and going on well with God. You see, the seeds of life are found in these things that Paul is talking about. So first he says, Fill, be filled with Christ. And then he says his, his, his bit that we'd like to chop out, many of us, from the Scriptures. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You're like, Simon, we were doing so well up until that point. Why did you have to read that verse? You've ruined it now. You've ruined it and you've ruined my day. <laughs> do you know, culturally, that's not a picture of marriage that you're going to see put on, on the BBC. That's not a picture of marriage that you're going to see promoted anywhere. One of my favorite... Um, uh, dialogues between a husband and wife is from the movie The Incredibles when Frozone, who's one of the heroes, is seeing an alien uh, uh, land and starts smashing up the city out of his apartment window. But he's been retired as a, as a superhero for a while. His wife, honey, where's my super suit? And she says, what? He said, where is my super suit? I put it away. Where? Why do you need to know? I need it. Uh-huh. Don't you even think of running off and doing no daring doing. We've been planning this dinner for two months. The public is in danger. My evening is in danger. You tell me where my suit is, woman. We are talking about the greater good. Greater good? I am your wife. I am the greatest good you are ever going to get. <laughs> I love that. The public is in danger. My evening is in danger. 
there's a few things we need to know before we start looking at this passage. First off, you know, some beliefs that we hold as a community are closed-handed and some are open-handed. Jesus is God, there is a trinity, he saved us by dying on a cross. These things are closed-handed issues. There are some that are open-handed where we can, as believers, be both God-fearing and love his word and disagree. This would be one of these passages. I'm going to give you what I think, what we as a senior team think about this passage. But actually, fundamentally, there is room and in our community for disagreement on this passage and how we see this. Out of it... Out of it, there are principles that apply. Either way you take it, there are ways that you can see and learn from God. But you need to know that there is space. And although I come down on one particular side of this, many of you don't know me, and you, you need to know that it's not because I feel that in any way women are inferior to men. <laughs> no way do I feel that women are inferior to, to men. I think women are amazing. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah. <laughs> I have great friends who are women. Some of our best leaders, our team leaders are women. I do everything I can to see women become all that they can be in God. At many of our team, and I don't just say this to blow my own trumpet, but many of our team who are female would say it was because I called them out and I picked them out and I saw gifting in them and said, you can do this, that they're doing what they do today, both in the church and out of the church. And so this is not from any kind of hatred of women or thinking that women are inferior in any way because it's not. I just believe this is what the Bible says about the relationship between husbands and wives. And I've seen hundreds of women, if not thousands of women across the world come into freedom and life and discover their place in the kingdom of God as I have prayed to them and with them and ministered to them because I love what God does through women. <laughs> you provide something unique in the body of Christ and you need to know that. A lady came to me one time, she said, although I disagree with you, Simon, on some of th these verses and how you take them, she said, you need to know, I have never found a place, a church like the King's Arms, where as a woman, I feel more released, more free, more able to be myself, and more able to fulfill what God has made me to be in the church. And I said, you make me happy by saying that. <laughs> Because actually, many churches actually would preach a different message and a different take on what I'm about to say, but actually their women are pushed down, they're oppressed, they're no, longer, they're no more free than they would be uh, in, in other communities. So you need to understand that. And secondly, this Paul and, G and Jesus radically reevaluated the place of women in society. There's no question about that. Up until this point, uh, 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 women's place, their view uh, in society was subservience, even in some places not even much more than property of their husbands. That's how they were seen. Uh, and Paul and Jesus both totally turned that on its head. And they, they, you know, Paul in Romans 16, people think, oh, Paul hated women, that's why he wrote this. No, no, no. You read Romans 16, the last chapter in Romans, and you read the list of men and women that Paul wants to thank for promoting and for helping in ministry. Half of the names are women. And when I realized that, I thought, you know what, as a community, we need to do more. This is about five years ago. I read that, and God spoke to me. We need to do more to do everything we can to be men and women on mission together. Some of our practices changed as a result of that. And it's critical to know. I mean, recently I took one of our, uh, our um, ladies on a team with us to another country, and she, she, was, she mostly does team leadership and administration. That's what she did. But I like to stretch everyone when we go. And so I said, right, guys, in this session, you're going to get up and prophesy over people in the room. So 
They all get up and she gets her turn and she picks out this guy at the back of the room, stands him up and says, there's a call to leadership and teaching and then lists off this whole kind of thing about him. I mean, he just breaks down under God. I mean, just like so moved. And afterwards he tells me, he says, she, I had a conversation yesterday, he said, and she literally read the entire conversation from start to end. And she's, she's one of our administrators, team leaders. And I said to her afterwards, where did that prophecy cast off come from? She's like, well, I've always known my strongest gift is prophecy. I was like, what? Where did that come from? Because out of a place, a culture, a context where women are valued and honored, they will rise up to be all that they can be in God. Hallelujah. Anyone getting happy by this? Good. Thirdly, we need to understand this. Submission and obedience in our culture today are negative words, but in biblical culture, in biblical language, they are not negative words at all. We read submission and obedience and think that if anyone needs to, to, to submit or to obey, they are somehow lesser in, 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 the, in our eyes. But the reality is in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Paul who's writing this, submission and obedience are not negative words at all. In fact, exactly the opposite. Who was held up as the one who submitted and obeyed the most and the best out of everyone? Jesus. And so Jesus is seen as the one who submitted and obeyed perfectly. And so when we read submission and obedience, we shouldn't read them through the lens of negativity and, oh, that's awful for them. We should read it as a sense of honour and pride that you get to take the place of Christ in submitting and obeying like he does, the Father. And it's so clear that we're critical that we understand that. You hear about Jesus, Matthew, uh, sorry, Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He served and humbled himself before us and before the Father. And you know you know why those words are seen so negatively today? It's because of this. It's because the history of the world is abuse under the words of submission and obedience. And you know who's dished out most of those, that abuse? Men. Men. Men have dished out that abuse. And so I just want to say to you, ladies, in fact, I want you all to stand up. Ladies, I want you to stand up. Because I want to say to you, as a man, as a leader in this church, I am so, so sorry for the abuse that you may have experienced, for the neglect, for the lack of encouragement, for the way that men have treated you. Some of you, it's not you, it's your mother or other women that you know, but you know what I'm talking about. And I just want to say, on, on behalf of men in this community, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that you've experienced that. And we want to build something, a different place, where women feel honored and valued as Christ honored and valued them. And I want you to know that, whether it's from your father or from your leader or from a husband or whoever it was from or a brother, I am so, so sorry. And will you find it in Christ to release forgiveness? Just close your eyes for a minute. Father, if you're a guy near just put a hand on the back appropriately. We just pray right now for our women that they would become all that they are in God. That you would wash away 
abuse and the years of abuse that some have experienced and that they would know a freedom and a joy and a life in being women and that they would be all that they can be in God and that we would create a platform and a place as men in this community for that to happen. We love you ladies and we need you. And we pray that we as men can be that one who comes alongside you to help you be all that you can be in Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Grab your seats. Guys, why don't you applaud the ladies for a moment. Fourth thing we need to know, and you're saying, God, this is the longest preamble to one verse I've ever heard in my life. Well, that's because there's been such cultural mess around this one verse. The fourth thing we need to know is that in Paul's day, there were, there were um, household co- codes that were set up by Aristotle, which basically Paul speaks into and uses and adopts. But the one thing that is most interesting is how Paul, not the fact that Paul used them, but the fact that Paul changed them. Because in the household code of his day, the, the household rules were all for the father. They were all for the husband. They were all for the, the owner of the servants in the house, the master as it were. And the, the household rules were written into that context and Paul changes them by what? In every case, as we'll see, he speaks first to the women, first to the, the sons and daughters, first to the servants, first to the slaves. He speaks to them first. Why does he do that? Because what he says is this, although in this culture, in this context of, Christi- uh, of Christian life that we're building, there are roles, there are different roles. There is a, as a sense of submission, there is a sense of that. It's only because you do it out freely because you are now in Christ. Whenever we submit, whether it's to a leader or whoever, we don't do it as one who is lesser. We do it as one who is equal, but one who submits because of Christ. We do it as it were, whatever you think on this passage, we do it as it were as one who steps into the shoes of Christ and we submit and obey because we are now being made into his image. And so Paul is saying, whereas in the old household roles, where it would say to the father, it would say say to the husband, ensure that your wife submits. Paul doesn't say that now. He says, instead, wives submit to your husbands. Because he's saying, wives, this is not forced upon you. This is something that you take upon yourself. And it's only in that context can this be understood. And much abuse has been done because that's not been understood. This is a voluntary stepping into a role, not having something pushed down your throat. And it makes the world of difference to how you read this passage. Fifthly, there are some arguments made that would interpret this passage differently, and I haven't got time to deal with them right now. Sorry about that. And sixthly, this passage is not talking about men and women in general, but husbands and wives. And much abuse, again, has been done where people take the principles here and just try and apply them to all men and all women. Of course, that's not the case. Does this apply to a single uh, life group or missional community female leader at all? No, it doesn't. And so we need to bear that in mind as we look at the passage. <gasps> there we go, okay. <laughs> There's my six preambles. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting them in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What is the picture then that Paul is painting of Christian marriage in these two parallel passages? 
it's this, it's wives that you recognize that you are equal to your husbands, that you are saved by the same grace that saved your husbands, that one day actually all differentiation between men and women will be gone. And he's saying that out of that place, out of that sense of identity, not out of inferiority, out of that place, wives, you choose to submit to your husbands. It doesn't mean that you're afraid to disagree. Many wives are afraid to disagree with their husbands. It doesn't mean that. If you're married, nudge your wife or husband at this point. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that you submit to all men. It doesn't mean to say that you couldn't, can't take a leadership role in the church or the family. But it does mean that there is a respect for your husband and his leadership in your family that enables him to be all that he can be. Instead of tearing him down and trying to uh, 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 push yourself above him, you are enabling him to create an environment where he can lead the family well. You're doing that together. You're leading it together. But you're ultimately deferring to his leadership in the house. That's what I believe that it means. And Caroline is an amazing wife in this respect. She's a phenomenal leader, phenomenal speaker, but she never talks badly about me to the kids. At least not what I, no, she doesn't. (laughs) And she plays her part to build a team that I can then lead in our family. We see our family as a team and she plays her part to help create the culture of that team. You know, she is glass half full, She's a positivity through and through. I'm sometimes glasses smashed and broken on the floor. (laughs) If it weren't for her, you'd have a very depressed leader leading you because she pulls me up. And she doesn't submit out of inferiority, but out of identity of who she is in God. She plays her part. We were talking about this recently, about the way it works. And the way one of the the things that we learned very early in marriage, after almost shipwrecking our marriage, was this sentence, wherever you disagree, God is trying to speak to both of you. I'd say if you just take one thing home from this, in your leadership, in your marriage, take that one line. Wherever you disagree, God is trying to speak to both of you. Because what it does is it presses the pause button. Instead of you going to the argument and the disagreement with, I'm right and I've just got to bring this person over to my point of view, you go in and say, God, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to say to me? How can I learn? Even if you're 99% right, when you go in with a position of humility, which mostly, no, no. When you go in with a position of humility, you realize, actually, even if there's only 1% that I can learn, I can grow through this. I can grow through this. I can learn through this. Whenever we disagree, God is trying to speak to both of us. It's so, so critical. You know, we're putting a new kitchen in at the moment, and I've got an opinion about kitchens. I I know a bit about kitchens. Not so much, but I pretend to know more than I do. And the reality is, though, where there is disagreements, what am I doing as a husband? I am trying to give Caroline the kitchen that she wants, the kitchen of her dreams. I'll take an offering at the end. I'm I'm (laughs) trying... Because she's wanted a new kitchen for 15 years, and although I've got an opinion about kitchen, to be honest, you know... It's a kitchen. But to her, it's a kitchen. And to me, it's a kitchen. And so I'm trying to give her, on those, those discussions, I'm trying to give her the kitchen of her dreams. Why is Paul is calling for respect for your husband that doesn't nag him or manipulate him into doing what you want. It's a respect that doesn't treat him like the fourth child. If, you, if you've got three kids and you think of your husband as the fourth child, you are in big, big trouble. Get some help. 
Seriously, get something out. That, thinking of your husband as the fourth child, is the seed to later breakdown of your marriage. Get some help, get some counsel, read some books, study together, because that thinking of him as a fourth child, of someone you've also got to raise in the family, is a disaster. It will shipwreck your marriage. He's not your fourth child. And if he's acting in some ways like a child, then change and work through together until that changes, because it's so, so critical. It's, it's a respect that gives your husband the space to be a husband. And you don't think, well, what if my husband doesn't have the same level of initiative as I do? What if I've got, you know, just honestly a greater degree of leadership than he has? It does happen, guys. It does happen, ladies. That happens. But actually, this model doesn't break down if we approach it with the right, with the right way. You know, in terms of the kids, Caroline will see things like 10 years before I see them. She sees issues like a, a five to 10 years before I see them. I'm not that sharp at picking up stuff for the kids. But what I've learned is instead of being intimidated by that gift, to see it as a gift. And then we lead together out of what she sees. Prophetically, she has dreams and revelations far more common than I do. She put, draws things together and pulls things together. Uh, initially, I, I, I could feel threatened by that. Why don't I hear from God like she, like he, but actually now I've realized this is a gift to me, to us, to help lead this together. If I refuse to be intimidated by her gifts, I can build a platform for God to make her gifts all the more and all the greater. Men, sometimes, ladies, men sometimes need longer to think through your revelations. Because you've been thinking and talking with your friends about it and it's all come pre-packaged, you've written the novel and it's all ready. <laughs> Give him some space to catch up, to take some time to reflect on what you've said. He will often need that. And the, the big thing I can say to you is encourage him. Encourage him in who he is. You know what, you guys can encourage me and I love, I, I love that, but, but one encouragement from Caroline is worth a hundred of you guys, sorry about that. <laughs> because your wife's encouragement your encouragement to your husband is like, is like gold. Encourage him where he needs it. And if you're single, if you're a single lady, I would urge you, get in practice with encouraging the men around you. Encouraging them in who they are in God. You will often see where they fail and where they mess up, but encourage them to grow into who they are in God. Encourage them at what they're getting right, not what they're getting wrong. And you might think, but if I do that, he might fancy, he might think I fancy him. Well, you can deal with that later. <laughs> but you can't create a culture of lack of encouragement between men and women because we're worried about he might think that I fancy him. That is toxic. And you know, if that becomes a problem, I'll help you. How about that? I'll help you sort out the mess, or, or maybe Paul would be better. <laughs> <laughs> but create that, that atmosphere. Get in practice. And husbands, what does this mean for us? It means that we need to live as one who is worthy of that level of submission and that level of respect. We need to create an atmosphere where it is easy to submit. Because you know what? Christ uses his authority to serve those who submit to him. And for too long, men have used their authority to domineer, to get their own way. And Christ uses his authority to serve those who submit to him.
That's why I don't think this is a dangerous passage and would destroy marriages if we applied it literally as it says. Many, many believers are trying to rewrite it because they're, they're worried about where this will go because of the abuse. I would say, no, no. Uh, the opposite of abuse is not no use. It's right use. It's right use of authority. And I would urge us as men, we approach marriage, we approach our relationships. And, and if you're a leader in any context, this applies to you, man or, male or female. We use our authority when we're giving it, given it to serve those who submit to us, to serve those who are under our leadership. And when we use our authority like that, it brings life and freedom. It does not mean you force your wife into submission. Particularly, it does not mean you use your physical strength or size to dominate and manipulate her into doing what you want her to do. It doesn't mean that you always get your way. In fact, very often, if you apply this verse to its full, it will mean you get your way less often. If you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, for, for her, then your use of authority more often will, not be, will be giving up. It will be sacrificing. It will be you playing the hard, choosing the harder road. It will be you choosing the thing that causes the family to flourish rather at your expense. If you apply your authority as Christ applied his authority, he went to the cross because of his authority. And so husbands, if we lived, if we had lived this since the beginning of humanity, I don't think any woman would have a problem with it, actually. It's because of the abuse and the toxic way that it's been, it's been, uh, it's been uh, manipulated by men. It doesn't mean that you'll always get your way. It doesn't mean that you lord it over your wife or domineer. It does mean that you open up and show a weakness. It means that you consult with her, you draw her into decisions. It means that you seek the best for her, that you seek to lift her up, that you seek for her to be all that she can be in God, that you seek for her to be your prize. And, and at the end of the day, for you to say, when Jesus says, well done, you say, well, how did my wife do? How did the women around me do? How did, how did I play my part in making them all that they could be in God? When you approach your wife or the women around you like that, it just will change the atmosphere. It will change the atmosphere. And I can tell you, single guys, it will get your wife as well, faster than anything else. Forget the deodorant commercials, although those are important. <laughs> Love women like this. Actually, Caroline's saying, don't forget the deodorant commercials. Okay, remember the deodorant commercials and <laughs> love women like this. You know, just a, just a silly illustration, which I've not shared before, but I felt the Lord prompted me to share. Well, Caroline and I spoke in a setting one time, and um, uh, when we spoke, uh, they'd heard me before, but never heard her, and afterwards, numbers of people said, Simon, you were good, but your wife was brilliant. She was so good. I mean, just, she was so good. I, I, was, I was so pleased. But what, what I knew, and Caroline knew, which they didn't know, was this, she often will prepare her own material, but in that setting, she hadn't had time. So she said, well, I can do it if you'll write it for me. So I had written the talk that she, the part of the talk that she gave. And when they were encouraging me and praising me for how she had done, do you know what I felt the Lord say? Don't tell her that you wrote it. Don't tell them that you wrote it. Don't tell them that you, because everything in me is like, I wrote that bit. <laughs> I felt the Lord say to me, don't tell them that you wrote it. Not, not to deceive them anyway, because they weren't asking me who wrote it. They were just talking about how well she'd done. And I, and I wanted to share that. I felt the Lord say, because I felt actually that is actually a picture of what husbands should do to their wives. <laughs> they should create a platform upon which their wives just shine. <laughs> 
They should be willing to share the glory. And, and that is, I believe, a godly application of how this verse should look. That's what this verse should look like in action and, and live on the ground. You know, it means, husbands, that, and I sat with a couple one time, and their marriage was a mess. And it was to beyond the point of saving, actually. And I, and I said to them, how, how long has this been going on? And the answer was five years. And then the wife said, I've been trying to get him to seek help for all this time. And actually, sadly, the marriage wasn't saved. Because to be honest, by the time we knew about it, it was just too late. Too much damage had been done. Guys, a godly use of your leadership in the family is when your wife says, we need help, you get help. Don't leave it too late. Don't out of pride that you've got to look like this is all together. Leave it too late. When she flags, and often she will be the one who flags up, we need help, this is not working. When she does that, make sure you find and get help. That's a godly use of that authority. Treat people, with women with respect, all men, but particularly husbands, lead your wives in this way. And men, you have got what it takes. If you think, man, alive, this is a, I mean, Jesus was crucified to the, for the church. I don't think I can do it. I hate nails and all that stuff. It feels really painful. You have got what it takes. Not because of anything in you, but because of Christ in you. Women, you have got what it takes to lead in this way, to, to submit in this way and to live out your own leadership in this way. And men, you've got what it takes. Husbands, you've got what it takes. Guys, you've got what it takes. You don't need to fear, we don't need to fear marriage because Christ, and that's what Paul said all the way up until this point, Christ is enough to enable you to live this out. And so as we just come to the landing, I just want us to know that whatever your background or situation however your marriage is now, even however you view this passage and however you take this passage, I'd urge you to know that Christ is in you and that he's working through you and that as you live out your leadership as the scriptures lay out, you will create an affair-proof marriage. That's a foundation that you can build. And the society around us would say, live in fear, you'll probably get divorced. And you know what, sometimes we do. Sometimes it just is beyond saving and sometimes there's difficulties and we can work that out and counsel that out together. But fundamentally, we've got to fight for marriage. We've got to fight for marriage. We've got to fight for it. We've got to build something that will last. We've got to build something that shows a different way. And if you've been through a divorce or are in the midst of going through a divorce, there is grace for you in our community. You don't have to think just because I messed it up one time, even two times, I'm going to mess it up again. There is grace for you to learn from the past and to build something new for the future. If your parents got divorced and you're fearful of getting married because of that, I would urge you that is not the Christian way. Lay down that fear and say, God, I don't know, my parents couldn't do it, but I want to, by your grace, I want to step up to do this. There's people here, you're afraid for your own marriage because your parents were divorced and you're thinking, I'm about, I was married about the same time as they were. I can see bad signs already. Listen, get help now. Don't let the fear get hold of you. Let's live as men and women, as husbands and wives, because of the Lord and because of what he has done in us and through us. Amen.